Amen, amen. Thank you again, choir and music ministry and in our diversity. We're very unified because of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is who he said he is. He's the son of God. He died on the cross for the sins of the world and he rose from the dead because he is the Messiah, the son of God, the God-man, Emmanuel, 100% God, 100% man. And when we, the Bible says when we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in him, man, we're, we're forgiven. We're children of God. Heaven's our home. Jesus Christ changed my life. He changes life because he is who he said he is. And we've been studying the life of Christ through the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke, we're in a journey. And, and like the choir saying too, if you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I've gone through heartache and losing loved ones and in my life too. And, and just things happen I don't understand. And dealing with folks when they have things that happen that are so unfair and so unkind. And we don't have an answer for a lot of this stuff. You know, we don't know why certain things happen. I don't know why God allows certain things to happen, but he can bring peace and joy in the midst of heartache. He's the closest to us when our hearts are broken and he can get us through it and he can turn our sorrow into joy. Yeah, it is true. We've been in a journey through the Gospel of Luke, started the first week of December. Uh, we saw in the very first chapter, chapter four, why Luke wrote this book, wrote this letter. Verse four says he wrote it so that we can know the certainty of the things that we have been taught. So Luke wrote this to a friend of his to show evidence that Jesus Christ and that the claims of Jesus Christ are certain and true. Luke was a very humble man. He was a doctor. We call him Dr. Luke. He was a doctor. He was the only guy with Paul. He stayed with Paul at the very end when Paul was dead, Paul says, only Luke stayed with me to the end. So he's a very faithful friend. The gospel of Luke is a kind of investigative journalism. Chapter one, verse two, it says, he said, I myself investigated everything from the beginning. The Christian faith, the Christian claims can be tested because it's historical facts with external evidence. There's fulfilled promises, there's fulfilled prophecies, there's eyewitnesses, reports. The Christian claims about who Jesus is and what he did is verifiable fact. Therefore, the word of God can be trusted. We're now in chapter three, chapter three today. Approximately 18 years have passed since last Sunday, right? When I was on chapter two, right? 18 years have passed since Mary and Joseph found their lost 12-year-old son, Jesus, there in the temple. And he told his parents that he was about his father's business. He was looking to his father's business. And during the years, the Bible tells us they returned back to Nazareth, that very last verse we looked at. Last week, it says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. At the same time, Jesus was growing and, and increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. His cousin, John the Baptist, right, which he's not called that yet, but he's going to be called that soon. His cousin, John, in chapter 2, verse 40, it says a lot of things, same things about him. The child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. We saw in chapter 1, verse 80, it talked about John, and it says that the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. So Luke starts this letter. He's now in chapter 3, and he's wanting his friend Theopolis, that's who he wrote this letter to, he wanted him to know that this gospel account was written in a spiritually dark time. 
He wanted him to know just how dark the scene was before John the Baptist appeared on the scene preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He wanted his friend to know just how spiritually dark the world was before John's cousin, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, was revealed as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And he begins by looking at who the leaders are. When we hit chapter 3, he starts off by looking at who the leaders were when he wrote this. Those who occupied the seats of the highest authority in the land at the time. Tiberius Caesar's mentioned, Herod's mentioned, Pilate's mentioned. A very wicked company of scoundrels. Tiberius Caesar, he wanted to be a god and worshipped as a god. Pilate was despised and he was feared from people. Herod was unbalanced, dangerous, and cruel. All these leaders who were in the highest office were power hungry and they would do anything to gain more power. It was against this backdrop of political and religious darkness that the word of God came to John son of Zacharias, who was living there in the wilderness. And we see that in chapter 3, verse 2. And John confronted the nation as the first authentic prophet in over 400 years. The last prophet in the Old Testament, in the beginning of the New Testament, 400-year period, inter-Testament period, there had not been an authentic prophet from God. John was that first prophet sent over after 400 years and he sent as God's messenger with God's message to declare God's judgment on his people. And I think it's very symbolic for John to be preaching in the desert because spiritually speaking, the nation of Israel was living in a desert of spiritual barrenness. They were living in a wilderness of unbelief. I mean, spiritual truth had been twisted. They couldn't even find spiritual truth. The priesthood was corrupt. The scribes, the Pharisees were hypocrites. The politicians were corrupt. Wow, that sounds like us, 2024. <laughs> it really does. I mean, honestly, I always say a lot has changed, right? But a lot has not changed. And a lot has not changed. I mean, religious leaders, hypocrites, and politicians are corrupt. And, and the people desperately needed to hear a voice from God. It was time for truth. It was time to repent. And that's John's message. And so we're in chapter 3. We're going to look at the whole chapter. I'm going to try and read a couple of verses with you. Um, so if you're able, would you please stand with me out of reverence and honor for God's holy word. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etura, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetra of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. I got to stop there. Well, that's some hard, man. <laughs> I know I butchered half of that, but you try it. Yeah. In front of everybody. You try it. I've been practicing it, but I just still blew it. All right. But you know what God said here. You can see it. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. 
make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You may be seated. Wow, that was seeker friendly, wasn't it? Wow, that was... Um, in your face, he, you know, yeah, he, he, he didn't care if people came back or not. Wow. Uh, it's time for truth. It's time to repent. And there's a couple of truths here I want us to see is we start off talking about the truth for bad times. In verses 1 and 2, he listed these folks in the highest leadership. They were corrupt politicians. And, and he also, I think, showed the time that he was writing this letter because it shows us that the gospel is rooted in actual history. It's just the truth. He's getting ready to tell us the truth for bad times. Uh, these are not made-up stories that illustrate spiritual or moral truths. This is history that happened at a particular time and place. It's been over 400 years since there's been a prophet in Israel calling God's people to spiritual renew and reform. Bad times were abounding everywhere. But times are especially bad when there is no word from God. What they needed, what we need today, is a word from God. And it seems like all, all we get is from our politicians on both sides of the aisle telling us this and telling us that. Now please hear me. I know we're in a political season. We got some voting starting this week. Politics are extremely important. They determine laws that affect all of us morally, financially, legally. We're in a mess in this country because I believe Christians have not voted like they, you know, have not gone to the vote like they should have. Christians should be involved in the political process. I believe that. We need to educate ourselves on, on the platforms of the politicians. We need to pray. But what God would have us do, we need to look at the word of God to see what does God say about these issues. And then we need to vote. We need to vote our biblical convictions. I tell people, vote biblical values because it does matter. That's extremely important. We're in a mess because I think Christians have not stood up and had their voice count. But balance that out. I think it's misguided for Christians to put their hope in the political process to fix the, the rampant evil of our society. To try to bring America back to traditional values, family values, and moral reform just through politics, that's like trying to put a tuxedo on a pig. Think about it. Even if you get that tuxedo on that pig, it's not going to stay on long term because... You didn't change the nature of the pig. A pig's gonna do what a pig does. It's gonna wallow in the mud. And so in times of moral decline, what the world needs is not a political solution. What we need is a spiritual solution. You wanna change behavior, you change the heart. Politics doesn't change the heart. It's the word of God, Jesus Christ, who will change the heart. You know, we got, I know we got people on all sides, both sides of the aisle, and, and Jesus did not come to take one side of the divide. He came to heal the divide. 
and our priorities are misguided, if we're more passionate about sharing our political values than we are in sharing Jesus Christ. And yet, if we, truth be known, you know, people know where we stand politically, but they don't know where we stand with Jesus. And that's a shame. We must be prophets, which means God spokespeople, people who speak God's truth to, the, to their generation. We must be prophets in our generation, not political partisans. The truth in bad times. And here's the truth. The truth for bad times is you want some good news. And the truth of the good news is God's salvation. Is God's salvation. And, and we see that here in verses three through six. The message of forgiveness of sin. He went in all the country around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That's the, the good news is God's salvation. And it's even better news when times get worse. And it goes to everyone in every age because all have sin and are therefore separated or alienated from a holy, loving God. The primary need of every person is reconciliation with God. We need to be made right with God, the one who made us through the forgiveness of sin. And it's time for truth. In God's house, it's time for truth in our country, and it's time to repent. We must repent. And the truth will not be easy to hear. I mean, he goes on in verses four through six, Luke quotes from prophet Isaiah to show that John's ministry was a fulfillment of that prophecy. I, you know, prophet Isaiah prophesies this hundreds of years before Christ. There's going to be a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough road smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. John was sent by God as a forerunner of the promised Messiah. His purpose was to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus Christ by calling God's people to all people to repent, to prepare their hearts and lives because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The good news in any time, especially bad times, is God's salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, salvation is from God. He's the original, I mean, he's the originator and provider of salvation. We saw in Luke chapter 2, verse 30, when Simeon holds the baby Jesus, what's he say there in verse 30? He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. Salvation is from God. And salvation means we must face the bad news about ourselves, that we are sinners, alienated, separated from the holy love of God. You see, God's message to a hurt and lost world begins with the issue of sin. Until people are brought before God in his holiness and wrath of all sin, until we understand who we are as sinners, that we're all born in sin, we all fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And until we realize just how sinful we are, we will not realize our desperate situation. And if you don't realize your desperate situation, you think you're okay because you're sitting here in church because you're a nice person, because you're doing good things. And that's a tragic mistake. The Bible tells us it's the Holy Spirit of God that convicts us of the awful sinfulness of our heart so that we can recognize our deepest need for forgiveness, for God's salvation. You and I must face the bad news about ourselves as a sinner before we can welcome and receive God's gracious salvation, gift of salvation. You see, salvation promises the good news. 
that if you and I repent and believe in Jesus Christ, that God will forgive us all our sins and make us right with God. We'll be restored, redeemed, righteous, not perfect, but right with God. And so John's message was simple and straightforward. He just went out there saying, repent, repent. And not exactly a seeker-friendly message, but it was a message of no compromise. It was a message of holding nothing back. It was a message of just being straightforward. Bottom line. The word repent means to turn around. It means to have a change of heart and mind. It means to change direction. You were thinking this way, but man, you turn around, you think you're going to go the other direction. You were heading down this path, following your own desires. Then you repent. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. You turn around, and now you're following Jesus Christ. Now, some people don't like the word repent. It seems kind of offensive to them. Who are you to tell me I'm heading the wrong direction or that I'm a sinner? But I want you to think about this. To repent is actually a helpful word because it calls people to turn around and get off the road that leads to destruction. Am I a very loving, caring pastor if I didn't ever tell you the truth about what God says? Man, and I always say to you a lot that if you see me doing something that's going to hurt me or my family or this church, biblically, you see something, love me enough to come talk to me, not to judge me, not to gloat over me because you love me and care about me and you care about this church, you care about my life and my family and you want to help me. Jesus also called people to repentance. That was his message. And he's not trying to hurt people by calling them sinners. He's trying to help them by showing them that their sins only going to bring death to their lives. And so John came in verse 3 preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. This does not mean that baptism brings forgiveness of sin. In fact, every time John baptized people, it followed them repenting of their sin first. And then baptism was a symbolic, a sign of their repentance. And then John, we see here, he applied the pressure to the people to take an honest look at themselves and then change. To truly repent means you must turn around. You must change your mind and heart about how you thought about this world, about life, and about heaven and hell you must about how you thought about jesus you must turn around and so the truth demands change and we see that in verse seven through i mean seven through nine jesus said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath i mean john the baptist he's called john the baptist because he baptized people and his name was john john the baptist taught that the people must bear fruit worthy of repentance he goes produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Man, he was a straight shooter. He knew some people were coming to see him, to get baptized, but had no intention of changing and so John surprises them with these harsh words, you brood of vipers. He's saying, you guys are like snakes fleeing from a burning bush. You're just trying to escape the fire, but you have no intention of changing your evil nature. You just, don't, you just want fire insurance. You just want to get away from the fire. He even calls out the teaching of the spiritual leaders because they thought, he knew what they were going to say. Hey, we're, we're children of Abraham. He said, you're going to say your father, Abraham was your father. And because of that, because you were born Jewish and you're a child of God, you know, because of the way you thought you were born into the Jewish nation, you have nothing to worry about. 
And John's like, he's telling him right up front, I don't want to hear what you got to say. I don't want to hear it. I know what you're going to say. You guys are Jewish. Abraham's your father. He, he said, I don't want to hear what you got to say. I know your father's the pastor of the church. Or you're, you know, your, your dad's a deacon. Or you sing in the choir. Or you come to church every time the door is open. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Talk to the hand. I don't want to hear what he's saying. Without repentance and evidence of your repentance, you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. These people were religious, no doubt. But they were lost. You know, you, you, you can be religious and be lost. Just because you come to church, just because you do, you know, good things, you can be spiritually lost. You can be spiritually lost. If there's never been a time in your life where from your heart you ask God to forgive you of your sins and you repented of your sins and you, and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the leader of your life, the forgiver of your sins, your Lord and Savior, and you say, I believe in you and I, I, I trust in you and I invite you into my life and I want to follow you. Unless you've had those times from your heart, and maybe you didn't say those exact words, but God knows if you meant that. As a young boy, I said that. I didn't say those exact words, but I meant that. God will save you and hear you. But you can be in church and, and, and be baptized and be leaders and even be a pastor of a church and never have that time in your life where you repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ. You just played the game. Uh, I've been with many guys like that when I was in seminary. They were just playing the game. They were just looking for a career. They were religious, but lost. And so these people, what do they say? Verse 10, they say, well, what are we supposed to do then? He's calling out these religious leaders, say, you guys are religious, but lost. What are we to do then? And then he tells them, to repent means to change, to turn around, to change your mind and heart. And if you truly repent, it's going to show in how you treat people. And so John addresses some very ethical problems of his time. In verse 11, he used the example of, hey, if you got a coat, two coats, give one to somebody who doesn't. You got some extra food, give it to somebody who doesn't. He said, if you're truly repentant, you're going to be generous. You're going to be willing to sacrifice some of the things you have and out of love for others. He didn't talk about the tax collector in chapter 12. He says, don't collect more than you're supposed to. He said, if you're truly repentant, you're going to be honest. You're going to be generous with those who are in need, but you're going to be honest. You're not going to cheat people. Then he dealt with the soldier there in verse 14 and 15. He said, don't exhort money from people. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. If you're truly repentant, it's going to show. You're going to be generous. You're going to be honest. You're going to be content. John was pointing out that if repentance is genuine, then it's going to impact the way we live our lives. It's going to impact the way we treat people. That's why when I see men and women who are believers and they know so much more than me about the Bible, but yet their attitude towards people is so unchristian, so unchristlike, man, I don't listen to them. You know, it just turns me off. I don't care how smart they are. Repentance begins with a broken, sorrowful heart. But true repentance ends with determined action. Man, it's going to, if you're changed, if you changed your mind and your actions, it's going to show it's going to show in your attitude. It's going to show in how you treat people. And the truth is the same for everybody. The truth that John is preaching is true for everybody, even the high, those in highest authority, which we see the truth will bring persecution. If you live for the truth, teach the truth, it's going to bring persecution. And we see that in verses 19 and 20. When John rebuked Herod because of Herodias, that's his brother's wife, he had her divorce her brother so he could marry her and it says and all the other evil things he had done Herod was very evil 
Herod added all these things to them and then he locked John up in prison. Because John called him out for marrying his brother's wife and for all the other evil things he's done, John threw him in prison. And we know as we read on that he eventually beheaded John the Baptist. So John was faithful no matter the audience. He was telling the truth to everybody, religious leaders, the highest political leaders in the land. Sometimes preachers do you the best honor when they get in your face. You know, he loves you best when he tells you the things you don't want to hear, but are true and necessary for your soul. And so to be a faithful witness about Jesus Christ means that we must lovingly confront people, lovingly confront people with the truth. And when they hear it, you're going to pay a price for it. And, and we don't know, Christ costs some to pay more prices than others, but we're going to pay the price. We can see very clearly from John, you know, that you're going to pay a price. But we also see from John very clear that Jesus is the truth. He's the truth. When all the people were being baptized, <clears throat> Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. I'm reading that just like while you're reading that, we're going, okay, what, why, why was Jesus why did he submit to baptism? Because he did not sin. He was sinless. He had no reason to repent. Why did he submit to baptism by John? Couple, couple reasons. First, a couple of reasons, I believe. First thing is, it shows us this. Baptism is necessary. And it shows you the importance of baptism. John preached baptism. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, Jesus commands us to go and baptize those in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is necessary and important. Another thing, Jesus was baptized not because he needed forgiveness. He was the sinless Son of God. But I believe Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist just as a way to, to, to show how valid John's ministry was. John was preaching this forgiveness of repentance of sin, and he wanted to validate John's ministry, that John is truly the prophet who was sent to prepare the way for me. Jesus also, by being baptized, set the example for us to follow, and it showed that he identified with sinners. He was sinless, but he identified with sinners, and he paid the price for our sins on the cross he took the price, and he came to exchange our sin for his righteousness. And, and baptism is symbolic of that. Once we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Christ, that we have died to our old sinful ways. And we have raised a new creation. The Spirit of God now lives in our life. We're forgiven. We're a child of God. And baptism is symbolic of that. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, baptism is that public confession that symbolizes what Jesus Christ has done spiritually on the inside of us. He's changed us. We died spiritually. I mean, we put our faith and trust in Christ, died to our sins, and now we raise a new life, the Bible says. We're spiritually born again. He has washed us from our sins. It's symbolic of that. Baptism, baptism does not save you. You get baptized because you are saved. It's symbolic of your belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word baptized here in the Greek New Testament means to be dunked. Or to be dipped. And that's where our kind of part of where our name, you're Baptist guys, you're the guys that dip and dunk. That's where Baptist comes from. And we get that because that's what the word means in the Greek. Jesus Christ was dunked, dipped by John the Baptist, you know. And, and so we see too that you always find believers' baptism 
in the word of God, they believed in Christ first. That way baptism meant something. It was symbolic of something that they had done. That's why you see us here. We don't baptize infants or young, young children. We wait until they understand what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ and put their faith and trust in Christ. And baptism is symbolic of that. Also, baptism is an act of obedience to Christ. He, he's the one that commands us to baptize people. Baptism also is declared publicly, we see here. A reason Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist, I believe, too, is because it's to declare publicly that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this launches his public ministry. So the voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love, and with you I'm well pleased. What do we see there? You see the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is unmistakable. We see the Son of God. You are my son, we see God the Father says a voice from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And we see God the Holy Spirit, because it says in the verse before, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And so you see the Trinity there. God the Father pours God the Spirit out upon God the Son with a powerful declaration of his divine love and pleasure with his Son. So Jesus came as God's representative to us, but he also came as our representative to God so that we might become sons and daughters by adoption by God. And because of Jesus Christ and our faith and trust in him, I mean, God says to us too, you're my child. Through adoption, we're children of God. That's our identity. That's our confidence. That's our security. You can take everything from me. You can even kill the body, but you can't touch my soul. As a believer in Jesus Christ, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord Jesus Christ. I know where I'm eventually going to be once I leave this place. Also, as children of God, we can experience God's love because he loves us. For God so loved the world. As a Christian, as a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God gives us that experience of God's goodness and love to us. As a child of God, we can expect God's pleasure in our life because when the Son of God dwells in our life, we become pleasing to him and, and we live to follow Christ and, we're, and we go about the Father's business. And when we do, one day the Bible says we, we can expect to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. And then he goes into the genealogy. Genealogy, verse 23 on, that chapter ends with the genealogy, which is very special too because it confirms that Jesus Christ is qualified to be the Messiah. He checked all the boxes to be the Messiah and Savior of Israel and the world. Talks about David and Abraham and Noah. Jesus, here he is, he's, right? Luke's writing an investigative piece showing that Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophecies. He is who he said he is. And now he's showing Jesus came through the proper salvation history. Jesus' genealogy tells us that his mission was planned way before history. This is not God's backup plan. This was planned before the foundation of the world. That should give us enormous comfort and confidence that God has all of this under his control. And God sent Jesus at the right time, the right place, that Jesus is certain and true. The genealogy helps Luke fulfill his promise in writing this gospel. His desire was to write to you an orderly account, it says there in chapter one, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. A lot of times we skip over genealogies, but I want you to think about this. Fulfilling the requirements for the Messiah, these were hundreds of prophecies written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, 
Fulfilling those requirements for Messiah cannot happen by chance or by choice. There's no way. We don't humanly control our birth. We don't choose our parents. We can't set the time of our birth or fulfillment of certain criteria for the Messiah. You know, they cannot be manipulated or fabricated. That means Jesus met all the criteria. That's a remarkable evidence that he is the rightful claim to be Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is certain and true. He's certain in truth. He is truth. And Jesus said that. Look at what Jesus says, John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't just know the way. He said he is the way. Jesus doesn't just go the way. He is the way. Jesus doesn't just show the way. He, he is the way. And not only that, Jesus says, I am truth. And when you know truth, it sets you free. John 8, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and it's the truth that will set you free. Which means as believers in Christ, we have a relationship with the truth. Jesus was not making some philosophical statement. He was making a personal statement. I am the way. I am the truth. I am life. I am he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. He was making a personal statement. And according to Jesus, the truth is not out there somewhere. Truth is not some concept. The truth is not some idea. According to Jesus, truth is a person, the person of Jesus himself. And the truth is found in Jesus. And when you know the truth, when you have a personal relationship with Jesus through faith and trust in him, you are free to truly live you're forgiven, no more shame, no more guilt, fresh start, second chance, third chance. You're forgiven, you're a child of God. You know where you came from, you now have a purpose, God has a plan for your life, and you know where you're going. Heaven's gonna be your eternal home. Then you can truly live. No matter how bad it is, you can truly have peace and contentment in a crazy, chaotic, divided, ungodly world. You see, this is what separates Jesus from all the other religious leaders. Muhammad says, I'm a prophet of truth. He says, I teach truth. That's what Muhammad says, I teach truth. Buddha says, I'm searching for truth. Join me on the search. Hindu teachings say, oh, you gotta go looking on that journey and you gotta look for truth. There's a lot of truth, you just gotta go looking for it. All the different religious leaders, they either say, I'm looking for truth or I'm teaching truth or I point to the truth. And yet Jesus comes out and says, I am the truth. I am the truth. That's an incredible divisive statement. It's either right or wrong. Jesus is either who he said he is or he's the biggest liar in history. And I want to tell you, like I've always told you, look at the evidence. Don't check your brain at the door when you come to church. God gave you your brain and your mind. Look at the evidence of who Jesus is, how he lived, what he said, the difference he makes. I have. And I believe Jesus Christ is who he said he is. He is truth. And I believe in him. And I put my faith and trust in him. I've never regretted it. I know truth. I live in a relationship with truth. And I'm set free. Jesus is truth. You take Jesus and you plug him back into those points I made so far. And it's true. Jesus is for bad times because he's the truth. Jesus is the good news of God's salvation. Jesus does demand change. You're going to follow him. You need to change. And following Jesus does bring persecution, but he's the truth. 
And so it's time for truth. It's time to repent. If you're not a believer in Christ, today's your day to repent of your sins and to believe and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we're getting ready to pray and you can do that. If you're a believer, I think it's time for us to repent of our apathy. What's happened to this country, morally, spiritually, it's been on our watch. And we need to repent. Have we done what God's asked us to do? Are we following Christ? Are we reading the word? Are we spending time with God? We need to repent of our apathy because the kingdom of God is at hand. And one day we can hear from God, you are my child whom I love and I'm well pleased. Have you repented of your sins? Have you believed in Christ? Will you pray with me? And this is between you and God. He knows your heart. He knows what you're trying to say. So if you mean it, if you're serious about it, even if you can't say the right words, he knows what you're trying to say. And her answer that prayer, their father, I, I thank you for always being there to hear us how you never give up on us. And Father, I just thank you that today we can come and I, I pray for those who do not have that peace knowing their sins are forgiven, that heaven's their home. And today they come and from their heart, they say, I, I wanna repent. I believe I'm a sinner like your word says and I wanna repent and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I wanna turn around from the direction I was going. I wanna turn back and follow Christ. I believe he is the one who died on the cross, the Messiah who died on the cross for my sins, who rose from the dead. And today I believe in him. I put my faith and trust in him as my Lord and Savior. And I want to follow him the rest of my life. Save me. And Father, there's many of your children here. Some of us is apathetic. We're not doing what you called us to do. We're doing things we shouldn't be doing. We've lost our joy and our passion. Father, help us to repent today too. And turn around, we've gotten off the path you have for us. Turn around and get back on the path you have for us. Come home. You do what you need to do. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.